This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello. Well, we just sent our newest Trumpet edition off to the printer last night. It's a special report on the modern Romans showing how America is going the way of ancient Rome toward a catastrophic fall. Evidence of this fall is all around us. We're going to start the show today with the latest revelations of government corruption exposed by the newest batches of the Twitter files. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, these Twitter files revelations just keep coming and coming. We're up to uh, batch eight now as of the time of recording, uh, the last three of which, six, seven, and eight, were released this week. And they're, they're real barn burners. I think the, the first one, uh, we're back with Substack writer Matt Taibbi, who released a batch of at least 150 internal emails between Yoel Roth and the FBI, all about censorship request. Uh, it was about the same um, same batch or the one right after also realized that in these, uh, these censorship requests, it wasn't just uh, uh, asking politely either, but the FBI had actually paid $3.4 million uh, to compensate Twitter employees for uh, redacting and censoring this information. So here's how, the, here's how the Twitter files describe it. It says, Twitter's contact with the FBI was constant and, per- and pervasive, as if it were a subsidiary. Uh, and another part, they even liken it to like a master a master canine relationship. So if you've, if you've ever seen a I know a police officer interacting with a with like a bomb sniffing dog or something like that. It's like so the the FBI is the police officer and Twitter's the dog, just taking every cue, uh, every cue from what its master is saying in this point. And the uh, the subsidiary analogy was also particularly poignant because that's a, a subsidiary is like a a daughter company um, with both financial and hierarchical ties back to the parent company where they said that Twitter's receiving both funding and direction uh, from the FBI, practically making it um, a node of the U.S. government for all intents uh, and purposes and completely blowing out of the water anyone who'd still try to claim that Twitter can censor what it wants because it's a, a private company. It's actually... You, if, you, if the next org chart they do for the uh, the federal government, they should uh, they should put they should put Twitter as a branch of the the Justice Department. We we were able to uh, to get a a major article in this coming issue from Stephen Flurry uh, on what he's been covering on the Trumpet Daily program this past week, and one of the points that he makes in that article, he was talking about it on the on the uh, program. 
is the the fact that you have men like men Ta- uh, Matt Taibbi and these these other journalists that Elon Musk has been using to expose these things. They're pretty leftist journalists. Uh, you know, they're they're former New York Times, they're, they're former Rolling Stone journalists. Uh, and they're uncovering quite a lot, but there's a major part of the story that they have not been covering. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, that's actually probably the biggest revelation from the Twitter files part eight, uh, where the uh, I think the author uh, Lee Fang writing for The Intercept said the searches were carried out by a Twitter attorney. So what I saw could be limited. Um and then other another journalists there from the conservative treehouse point out the fact that they, these were definitely limited because so far all the Twitter files, ba- batches one through batches eight, are all things the FBI and Twitter were doing during the Trump administration. Uh, they they mysteriously stop uh, as you go back in time as soon as you get into the Obama years, uh, and they're pretty much admitting that they're <laughs> they have the files about what Twitter was doing during the Obama years. Uh, but these attorneys who are, it's kind of like the you know, the Jim Baker, until Elon Musk fired him, was censoring out any information critical of the FBI. Right. There's some attorneys in Twitter that are still censoring out any information about what Twitter was doing uh, during the Obama years, which is really the genesis of the story. Uh, I did a little bit of digging into that so far, and... Um, uh, if you'll remember, or actually you probably won't remember, I think this was kind of under the radar. Most people <laughs> didn't notice it happened. But uh, when during those Obama years, Obama signed uh, an executive order, uh, uh, particularly it was Executive Order 13691, um, which was titled Promoting Private Sector Cybersecurity Information Sharing. Pretty technical read. Uh, but if you go through that, it's basically... Uh, talking about, he said, well, for cyber security reasons, uh, we need to start promoting some level of cooperation between <laughs> big tech companies and uh, the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably that's probably about the time this master canine relationship between Twitter and these big tech companies and the FBI uh, started forming. Uh, the, 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 it was already this was a fully formed relationship during the Trump presidency. Uh, it, it was not fully formed during the George W. Bush presidency, mm-hmm. which means something happened. Uh, maybe that executive order and probably even a bunch of other executive orders oh, we don't know about during the Obama years that where basically the uh, Twitter got nationalized under the cover <laughs> uh, undercover where it ceased to be a private company and started to be uh, an arm of the U.S. government and continued uh, operating as an arm of the, this deep state throughout the Trump years. And, uh, and so far, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully if Elon Musk finds whoever that attorney is and fires them like they did the, the, the Jim Baker, we might have future batches of the Twitter files that shed more light on what was happening uh, before 2017, because mm-hmm. that's going to be a really interesting part. Is like, okay, well now we've we've proved that Twitter is a subsidiary of the FBI, but how did that happen? Because mm-hmm. it was it was already a subsidiary in 2017, which means that it became one at some point before 2017. Yeah, uh, when Barack Obama was in office. 
I certainly hope that uh, that that unfolds the way that you suggest, because uh, what Elon Musk is doing truly is a, uh, a a service to America in bringing all of this out to light. I uh, I, I, I would really encourage you to check this article out when this comes out uh, next week. This is the February 2023 Trumpet edition that we've just sent to press. And Stephen Fleury's article, Dark Truths Exposed. It says, FTX, Twitter, Biden, Obama, censorship, collusion, corruption. How is it that secrets buried so deeply by such powerful people are being revealed and why? this? Uh, we talk, we've talked a lot about this being the age of exposure, and this is exactly uh, what is happening here. These things that these folks wanted never revealed, they're coming out into the open, and one would hope that uh, some accountability would would follow, that the people who are responsible for these things would be held to account. Uh, in the meantime, you can go to thetrumpet.com, we'll link to it in the show notes, uh, and read Stephen Flurry's Trumpet Brief from earlier this week, Twittergate Big Tech is a subsidiary of the FBI. This is a story we will continue to follow closely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. We go now to Asia, where last Friday, Japan essentially announced that it was totally doing away with its pacifist constitutional constraints. For this story, we'll go to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, so on this program and uh, in the other publications of the Trumpet, we often talk about regarding the war in Ukraine that's been going on for almost a year right now, the reaction that it's having with Europe and how it's causing Europe to militarize. This There's another trend. We've put some attention on to it, not as much as Europe, but it's uh, almost like another side of the same coin. Uh, Russia is also encouraging militarization in Asia. Um, Japan uh, recently announced on Friday that it was going to try and double its defense budget to about 2% of its GDP by 2027. And it's not the only uh, development they announced. They also announced uh, they're going to continue to pursue counter-strike capabilities, which basically means a preemptive strike against uh, potential threats. Now, this doesn't sound like too, too much, but you have to remember Japan is the world's third largest economy which means that if these plans are to go ahead, Japan would be spending roughly $100 billion, you're the equivalent of, for its defense, which would put it among the largest defense spenders in the world. Now, officially, Japan is not getting rid of its pacifist constitution. Um, they've been uh, muddying the waters and uh, pushing the boundaries for, for years now to build up one of the best militaries in the world. But this really uh, basically shreds any semblance that the Constitution is going to be adhered to for two reasons. One, um, the reason Japan has its Constitution in the first place is after World War II, America occupied Japan and forced it upon Japan in exchange for America providing Japan its security. America still is the largest defense spender in the world. But you can see now with the war in Ukraine, with other events that have happened recently, like the fiasco with the Afghanistan withdrawal, you're seeing the Japanese want to take more and more matters into their own hands. And the second thing is, again, Japan is surrounded by powerful neighbors like China, and China's the main reason uh, they'd be, or one of the main reasons they'd be militarizing. But still... 
hundred billion dollars, that is a hefty amount. And the idea that this force would only be for defensive purposes, I mean, obviously, Japan needs a large army to defend its country if, if it were attacked, but it would make a, an equally competent force for of offensive purposes, going well above and beyond what would be necessary during during the, the current geopolitical climate. So while, again, officially Japan is not axing its constitution or, uh, or anything like that, uh, you could say it's uh, saying sayonara to a uh, small military. Eh. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting how much the—it seems a, a lot of conservatives within the United States are saying, hey, this is really the cause for celebration. Japan needs to be stepping up uh, its military spending. I, it just makes me think about the—there's uh, a proverb that says, remove not the ancient landmark which your fathers have sent— uh, the fact that it was the, the people who put those provisions in place after World War II to prevent this sort of thing from Japan. Japan has been pushing the limits for quite some time, but there was a reason, a very good reason, why uh, why American and, and British leaders put the, uh, American leaders especially, put those provisions in place uh, and uh, were throwing those out, casting those aside and saying this is a good thing that uh, that is happening. Maybe you could just talk about uh, what is motivating Japan? I mean, in one sense, you can look at what's happening in Asia and say, well, it makes sense. Japan needs to be doing this. But explain the, the context of this decision. Of course. Well, as aforementioned, Japan is in a Western capitalist democracy surrounded by a lot of hostile uh, adversaries. Russia, of course, shares a maritime border with uh, Japan. I mentioned China, North Korea recently fired two missiles off its east coast towards the the sea this uh today so you can understand with neighbors like that why japan is uh, a little bit edgy with this but you also have to remember i mean at this point relations between washington and tokyo are pretty good in fact even during the uh, trump years when a lot of traditional american alliances were having problems a lot of people said that japan was still one of america's strongest uh, allies back then shinzo abe was in power and he got along pretty well with trump so with this defense spending it's not necessarily a, a way of saying that we hate everything america stands for we, we like we want a complete uh, rupture with the u.s as of yet however with this with the pacifist constitution and america's pledge while being under america's security umbrella is a good thing at the same time, that does limit Japan's sovereignty in not being able to wield your own military, not being able to control what you do with it. That's That obviously is uh, something that if, say, you want Japan to be an independent country to pursue its own foreign policy, its own military policy, regardless what the Western, the superpower of the West says, that obviously has to go. Again, Japan is at the moment a liberal democracy. You could think what's the big deal it's you know it's a symbol of of prosperity and freedom in an otherwise autocratic asia but looking at its historical context like you mentioned i mean world war ii was wasn't that long ago it's still within living memory and japan to this point has a very very controversial relationship with its legacy of world war ii there's uh the uh Every now and then, sometimes Japanese politicians will even go to Shinto shrines to honor uh, dead uh, Japanese uh, 
uh, war criminals, for example, um, and that would cause rows with neighbor neighboring countries like South Korea, uh, and even World War II technically between Russia and Japan hasn't even been settled yet over a dispute over some islands in the north. So the legacy of World War II and what that all means, it's still within the Japanese conscience. And uh, a Japan that's independent of the United States, a, a Japan that's conducting its own foreign policy, does bring back some memories of that. And even before World War II started, Japan was considered part of the Western camp. It was considered a liberal democracy. It's uh, in a transition from being a liberal democracy to a, a highly violent warrior culture within a few years, like just within the interwar years, and it started its war with China, which morphed into World War II eventually years before the European theater outbroke or broke out. So just because Japan's a democracy today, just because Japan is a capitalist country today, as history and living memory shows, this doesn't necessarily mean this is going to be what Japan will be in the future. Right, and anyone who uh, isn't um, convinced by that evidence really should look at Bible prophecy. Of course. Well, a couple of scriptures we go to in the book of Revelation are Revelation 16, 12, 9, and chapter 9, 16, which talk about uh, a block called the Kings of the East that are prophesied to do a lot of damage in the world. We've constantly, uh, in the trumpet, pointed to countries like Russia and China forming the big bulk of that. But we've also pointed to Japan being a part of that. Our editor, the editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, he pointed to Japan remilitarizing for decades, starting all the way back in the 1960s at least. And back then, Japan was a pacifist country. Uh, it looked unlikely that Japan would be a military power player. We're seeing the fulfillment of Mr. Armstrong's predictions happening right now with these uh, increases in defense spending, with the other military developments Japan is doing. So this prophecy that Mr. Armstrong elaborated on that he predicted way back in the dec uh, decades back when it looked like it wouldn't happen, it's starting to be fulfilled right now. And if that's gonna, if it's starting to be fulfilled right now, we can expect the end of them uh, to uh, of a united Asia power block doing formidable things on the world to happen very, very soon. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Zekic. We do have a, an article, a trumpet brief that went out this week from our trumpet writer, Rufaro Manyepa, on the samurai abandons pacifism. We'll link to in the show notes, and uh, we'll put more information there about this Asian alliance that is going to develop that's very clearly stated in biblical prophecy. Well, a stunning document was leaked from the European Union from leaders aimed at protecting Palestinian claims in the West Bank. Israeli leaders are up in arms over this. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this was an absolutely stunning uh, development, uh, a leaked report that came out on Monday on Israel of, of a document, an internal document that was written in June for the European Union that looked at the efforts that they're going to to create facts on the ground inside the West Bank that really favor the Palestinians establishing a state where Israel currently has sovereignty. Uh, as far as the the um, Oslo Accords is kind of still what we're functioning in this this uh, situation where there's three areas in the West Bank um, and one of them, Area A, is ruled over by the Palestinians. This is Jericho, Ramallah, Nablus, these other these places that Israeli citizens aren't allowed to even go. And then you have Area B, which kind of has shared uh, 
power held by the Israelis and the Palestinians. And then you have Area C, which forms over 60% of the West Bank, which is full Israeli control. Now, what the, the European Union is doing covertly, as brought out by this uh, document, is it is funding NGOs to, to the tunes of millions and millions of dollars to build uh, illegal constructions inside Area C to um, create these little communities of Palestinians. So you hear all the time Israel settlements, Israel settlements, Jewish settlements inside Area C. And what you have from the, the European Union is that they are creating illegal Palestinian settlements inside Area C. And so this is infuriating the Israelis because it, it, it it's basically infringing on Israel's sovereignty. They are the sovereign in this territory. And yet you have this supposedly unbiased mediator of the Palestinians and the Israelis in some type of peace negotiation that is actually going behind the backs of one of the parties and funding construction of buildings in very critical areas inside Area C that would make it hard for a future contiguous, you know, Israeli uh, state inside this portion of the West Bank. Any other details that are of concern to Israelis in this leaked document? I think one that we keep our eyes on, and, and a lot of Israelis are as well, is this weird kind of fascination that the EU and even the Biden administration, I would say as well, has on uh, focusing on the archaeological excavations that are taking place uh, inside the West Bank in this area and even bordering on East, East Jerusalem as well. So this, this document, it calls uh, on Europe to closely follow and monitor Israeli arche archaeological activity in the area claiming that the archaeology was being used as a pretext by the Israelis for settlement building. Uh, Melanie Phillips wrote on about this point in an article um, entitled The European Union Subversion of Israel. She wrote, quite, quote, what this really means is that the EU wants to stop these excavations because they are consistently uncovering indisputable archaeological proof that the Jews are the indigenous people of the land. And so you have the narrative that the EU wants to create, that the Jews are, are, are colonizers coming into a land where they don't belong. Archaeological excavations in this area in Jerusalem are consistently proving that this is false, that the indigenous people here to this land are, are Jewish people. And so the EU is going after these digs, trying to stop them, trying to put pressure on the Israelis to stop them. This is huge, huge in academia right now, that if you as an Israeli are funding or working on a dig in the West Bank and borderline East Jerusalem, that you're going to be outlawed from presenting your information at European forums. Uh, you're going to be outlawed from presenting your papers in European journals. It's huge academic war. But now it's getting, you know, it's it's even getting more attention, I would say, from the European Union itself. I think this is just a, a very interesting element to this discussion uh, based in biblical prophecy. Uh, it, there are a few prophecies that actually indicate archaeological discoveries that are going to be made in this time. One of them is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 8. It talks about the tombs of the kings of Judah being found. And the context of this prophecy isn't that they, they are found, but it's that what happens to that archaeological discovery. The mm -hmm. context is 
a revived Holy Roman Empire knowing about the discovery and trying to get rid of it, trying to destroy it, trying to erase the evidence, talking about them taking the bones of the kings and and spreading them out, trying to get rid of any evidence uh, of Jewish or even, I would say, Davidic you know, uh, claims uh, to Jerusalem. And here you have in a small seed, I would say, uh, a small beginning, mm-hmm. some of that same thought process that's playing out within the Euro- European Union today. Really fascinating. Uh, I'd like to talk more about the, the dynamic between Israelis and Europeans, but for more information on that specific prophecy, where would you send people? Yeah, I think a great article that people can read is uh, by Mr. Gerald Flurry. It's entitled, An Astonishing Archaeological Discovery is Imminent uh, for this point. So the fact that this document has been exposed, that it was leaked, that shows uh, uh, really the... I guess the, the, the real motives behind uh, uh, some of these European leaders, that this really should alarm Israelis. I, I just think about how much they have had to distance themselves to a degree from the Biden administration, which is working against Israeli interests, and they've been looking more toward Europe uh, for the, the alliance that, uh, that they're lacking with the United States right now. Uh, this shows that's not such a good idea. Yeah, I mean, Israel's getting getting pushed from all sides, it seems. Uh, and I, I do think it does put Israel in a difficult situation. I think the current government believes that regardless of how people feel about Israel, when they see Israel's technical abilities, their um, uh, the economic might that they have in the region, when they see the Arabs jumping on board, that hopefully, and the security situation necessitates an alliance with Israel. They're hoping those benefits impact the hearts eventually uh, of the Europeans, perhaps the Americans and the Arabs. However, consistently what we see through history, and, and I think Netanyahu is aware of this fact, is that while there is... Um, you know, there might be a temporary relationship with these with these partners. Um, you've got to be very careful. Um, and I think it, what this EU document really blows the cover of all the nice sayings of the European leaders of human rights and so on. They're funding a Palestinian state right under the noses of the Israelis in territory that is meant to be decided upon the parties. That means the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so I do Biblical prophecy does indicate that Israel, as it is pushed in between a rock and a hard place with Iran, the growing problem with Iran, they are going to reach out to Europe for help. And this is in the face, I think, of a lot of evidence that that the Europeans, such as this, don't have Israel's best interest at heart. Um, and this is going to be one of the great double crosses in history that takes place when Israel actually invites a European peacekeeping force uh, in the future to, to Jerusalem to help them defend against an Iranian-backed Arab onslaught. Um, this prophecy is brought out in, in Daniel chapter 11. It's also mentioned in uh, Matthew chapter 24 um, with Jerusalem being encompassed by armies. They're European armies. And yet Hosea chapter 5, just another prophecy, talks about how Israel actually goes for assistance for Europe to help them out. And so the warning signs are there. I mean, what God wants, I think, is for Israelis and for 
all to to reach out to him for their protection going uh, protection um but israel isn't going to do that uh and just the true face i think of the european union and that forthcoming double cross at the end is brought out by this this paper that was written um people if they want to understand more about this definitely request the eternal has chosen jerusalem by mr gerald flurry the chapter the last crusade in that book, I think it's one of the final chapters, really does go into those biblical prophecies about Europe and this double cross. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Noctegal. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had a big week. He's quite an international celebrity. He visited America. He spoke to Congress. He also won a coveted European prize. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, the European prize didn't come quite with the same amount of prize money as the trip to the United States uh, <laughs> included. But on December 16th, it was announced that um, that Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and then also the Ukrainian people would win the 2023 International Charlemagne Prize of Aachen. So this is a prize that is given to any public figures that have made an outstanding contribution towards European unity. And I mean, in some ways, this is a great year in review kind of a story because this is exactly the effect that the war in Ukraine has had on Europe. It's helped bring Europe together. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's in some way, maybe maybe Vladimir Putin would have been a uh, better recipient of the prize in that he started the war and uh, instigated this event that is bringing Europe together. But uh, in that sense, it's a, it's a pretty appropriate award. So tell us about the Charlemagne Prize. Who is this named after and what does this award represent? So... Charlemagne was a pretty violent individual. He was very famously crowned Holy Roman Empire on Christmas Day, 800 AD. And just like the original Roman Empire, uh, shed a huge amount of blood in, in spreading his, uh, his conquests all over Europe. Unlike the original Roman Empire, though, he also had religion and forced conversions and, and that kind of persecution as an additional aspect to his reign. So he was a, a strong man ruling Europe. And this is another reason why I think that uh, the Zelensky Award is quite appropriate. It's leading to a strong man lead, ruling Europe. Europe is seeing the need to have their own kind of Vladimir Putin who can stand up on the world scene. And so this is this to me, this is what is most fascinating about this story is that you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. We had an article, the very next Trumpet issue, Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine. A lot of that article was written, or was an updated version of an article the editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, wrote the day after Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And right from there, he was saying, watch how Europe reacts. Watch how Germany reacts. Watch for this to have Europe come together in unity and watch for this to bring a strong leader in Europe, because those are the prophecies that we're watching in, in Europe. And now you have this prestigious award committee acknowledging that Mr. Flurry was right. And that, that this Europe coming together has been exactly the response uh, of what we saw. So uh, that article, Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Europe, is a great place to go to understand why Mr. Flurry made those remarkable predictions that at the end of the year we can see have been proven true. 
All right, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, we'll talk about this monstrous spending bill ramrodded through America's Congress. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. As the U.S. House of Representatives gets ready to transition to Republican leadership, the outgoing Democrat-controlled Congress just approved a $1.7 trillion budget for the coming year with the help of some Republicans who apparently have no interest in demonstrating any real leadership. For this story, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, it was a very monstrous betrayal took place in the United States Senate yesterday as they they had been debating a huge mammoth uh, $1.7 trillion spending bill to keep the government fully funded until the end of the fiscal year. And uh, Republicans had been holding out for a little bit uh, over some disagreements over Title 42 that's a Trump era policy that allows um, the government to deport immigrants from places that have diseases like COVID and things like that, which is coming up for expiration. So there's a bunch of illegals at the border waiting to cross over as soon as that expires, thinking that they can't be deported. Uh, the Republicans wanted to extend the Title 42 and they wanted it uh, in the bill. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, along with 11 other Republicans, so 12 Republicans, decided to switch over and vote with the Democrats for the bill um, anyway, which is a big, <laughs> a big thing, because not only, not only did they cave on the Title 42, now that Title 42 is going to expire and all these illegals are going to pour into the country, uh, that spending bill had... Uh, some other very significant pieces of of legislation uh, embedded as pork in it, uh, even including a, a big um, change to U.S. election law. And um, if you'll remember on the, the January 6, uh, 2001, uh, 2021, there was hope, uh, given the evidence of a stolen election, that Mike Pence would not certify the results uh, now there, uh, this bill uh, reclarifies the law, saying that the uh, vice president has to certify the results. He's just there to count. Mm -hmm. uh, he's there to count. He he can't. He has no authority to weigh in whether <laughs> whether the the delegates um, votes were legitimate or not. So uh, it's a big cave on a big cave on election law for the Republicans, in addition to the big cave on immigration, and then of course also the the obvious elephant in the room is just the the big cave on uh, spending itself. I mean, one point seven trillion is a ton of money, uh, and this thing's filled with uh, pork for gender lgbtq plus climate initiatives i think they've got 200 million in there for the gender equality and action fund uh 286 million in there for some what they call title x funding which goes to planned parenthood um another uh 105 1000 uh, for an lgbtq plus mentoring program at big brothers big sisters and just 
numerous other uh, pork laden things for for climate change and um, and the uh, the homosexual agenda in this bill. Uh, not to mention just the uh, the fact that the uh, University of Pennsylvania is now saying we're on track to have a national debt that's two hundred and twenty five percent of GDP by twenty fifty. It's stunning to see uh, Republicans giving into this. Mitch McConnell and these uh, these high level uh, Republicans who could have prevented this very easily. Stephen Flurry has just been talking a lot on the Trumpet Daily about what he's ca calling the uniparty, how there is essentially uh, so much overlap in the agenda between Republicans and Democrats. There really is no one willing to stand up against this uh, this type of monstrosity. Yeah, absolutely. If the Republicans, they didn't have to do this. If they would have just refused to vote for the bill, uh, the Democrats eventually, it might have taken a little bit, but they would have caved on the, uh, the Title 42 and probably the election law thing as well. Uh, and so this was a this was a pretty big betrayal. I haven't actually combed through the details of all the names of the 12 Republicans who voted with the Democrats. But uh, but just glancing over it, a lot of them looked familiar <laughs> uh, from the yeah. Defense of Marriage Act betrayal that happened or the Respect for Marriage Act. Where, that was, again, where they um, they passed a bill uh, making same sex marriage legal in every state. Uh, which was, again, 12 Republicans. And I think there's a lot of those 12 Republicans who did each thing. So the, there is, yeah, definitely the, uh, the uniparty is a good way to, the good, uh, a good way to put it, where you've got not every Republican in the Republican Party, but uh, at least 12 and probably more than that who uh, are actually um, pretty, uh, pretty comfortable with the Democrat agenda on immigration and on election reform and on the redefining of family and and the financial suicide of the the United States really I right. think when you're you look at just even some of those even if even if you weren't spending it on stupid stuff like climate change and gender reassignment whatever uh the fact that there's 1.7 trillion it's that the uh that study I saw from the Pennsylvania Wharton School said that pretty much they said America either needs to uh, increase its tax revenue by 40 percent, uh, reduce its spending by 30 percent, or some combination of both. But uh, if you keep running uh, the trillion dollar deficits uh, or, or near to it each year and you get to a point that within a generation you're up to your debts twice your gross domestic product and 3% of your gross domestic product is at least 3% of your gross domestic product uh, is going to interest on the national debt alone. I mean, you're, you're walking right into a, a death spiral where you're borrowing money to pay the interest on the money you already borrowed. And uh, mm -hmm. like I said, if a family, if a family acts like that, it's like you're, you're, you're heading straight into bankruptcy on a grease toboggan slide. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a, a reprint article called The Biggest Threat to America's National Security with warnings from people about just how dangerous this kind of gargantuan national debt is. And it, it, it just keeps on growing and the threat to our national security continues to grow as well. If you want more information about this, I'd really encourage you to uh, listen to the Trumpet Daily. Stephen Flurry has been really uh, hammering this. I'm sure he's going to get into it. 
uh, more on, on today's program. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli's prime minister, he successfully concluded negotiations to form his new government this week. To learn about this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this was one of the uh, last things that needed to be done before we are assured of a Netanyahu prime ministership. Of course, the election took place a few weeks ago, and, and there was great celebrations, I think, uh, along conservative lines that Netanyahu would be back. Um, but he still needed to go ahead and, and prove to, to the president of Israel that they could actually form a coalition, that everyone is going to come together and say yes. And so you've had this wrangling going on for the past three weeks between Netanyahu and all his disparate parties that all want a piece of the action to push forth their own personal agenda. And of course, the usual suspects were saying that it could break apart. Netanyahu's not prime minister yet. Uh, but it turns, turns out that no one can out-savvy Netanyahu with this. And so 18 minutes before midnight on Wednesday night, when that was the deadline, midnight, uh, to show that he could make a coalition, that he phoned the, the president, President had a late night as well and said that they've done it. So they're going, they are going to come together. I think January 2nd is going to be the swearing in. And yeah, we are going to see definitely a conservative government in Israel, and that will be led by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. So looking at the composition of the government that he's putting together, what are we, what hints are we getting about uh, what his priorities will be once he is back in power? The left would want you to think that everything has to do with um, anti-gay legislation, uh, pro-religious study, um, <laughs> you know, and just some crazy anti, like uh, annexing the whole West Bank. Um, however, one of the coalition agreements states, and this was reported to the Times of Israel, um, that Likud, which is Netanyahu's party, and all the others, uh, they agree to provide complete and total preference to legislation aimed at reforming the judicial system. So that is going to be number one priority, reforming Israel's judicial system. Israel has the most rogue Supreme Court uh, in a democracy, in a Western democracy, which allows it to act on a quasi-constitutional law that was passed in the middle of the night back in 1993 that claims that if they disagree with a law that is passed by the legislative branch and it disagrees with their definition of human dignity, uh, the court's definition, that it can strike down uh, legislation. And we wrote about this in an article two years ago. It's called Israel's Rogue Supreme Court. And this is what Netanyahu and his allies are trying to stop. The inability of democratically elected legislatures from passing laws that a Supreme Court, an, an entirely leftist Supreme Court, that basically re-elects itself, that gets the members that it wants onto the Supreme Court to perpetuate the leftist policies, um, Netanyahu wants to overhaul this. And so this means that for the as soon as Netanyahu comes in, the focus is on this. It also means that all you're going to hear from the media is that Netanyahu is trying to destroy democracy in <laughs> Israel. Yeah. Um, so get ready for that. But I think you know if this if this if they're able to kind of uh, change how the Supreme Court uh, adjudicates cases and the makeup of the Supreme Court, you could see a period of stabilization for Israel, um, pushing through uh, smart 
legislation. Uh, and this, I think, is what, what we're expecting from this government based on biblical prophecy and its similarities to what's going to happen in the United States mm-hmm. is a period of, of uh, stabilization. Um, for Israel. I think people can read about this uh, in the article that we wrote for The Last Trumpet. Um, BB is back. Well, that is uh, that is very interesting, just how closely uh, events in Israel are paralleling, uh, and in this case, ahead of events in the United States. But this uh, attack uh, that Netanyahu is aiming to make at the Israeli deep state is really one that uh, is increasingly clear must be made in America if there is to be a a future of this republic. Uh, But we can watch uh, Israel closely to see how these events track over there. We appreciate you keeping us apprised of developments there, and we will keep our eyes on how that unfolds once Netanyahu is back in power. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Naktagal. We will link to those articles in the show notes, Israel's Rogue Supreme Court and BB is back. You can check that out in the show notes of the program today. Sweden and Finland have been talking about joining NATO. Russia has absolutely no interest in this taking place, and this week it made sure they understood this. To learn how, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, on Wednesday, the Russian government made some uh, or unveiled some plans to start militarizing its northwestern border. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu uh, stated, quote, given NATO's desire to increase its military potential near the Russian borders, as well as to expand the alliance by adding Finland and Sweden, it is necessary to take retaliatory measures and to create an appropriate grouping of troops in the northwest of Russia, end quote. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. Finland and Sweden, they were members of the European Union, but not NATO. During the Cold War, both were neutral because they were afraid of uh, this very kind of scenario happening. Um, and even Finland fought a war with Russia during World War II and within living memory. So for, for the longest time, both these small, uh, peaceful, low-population countries wanted to do whatever they could to avoid stirring up the Russian bear. But with the war in Ukraine going on, now it's gotten to the point where they're so scared of Russia, they don't care. They need more and more military protection, and they want to be integrated with the West more. And Russia's seeing that, meanwhile, and saying, okay, well, we're going to respond in kind then. Shoigu didn't make any, uh, give any figures on what the size of the troops or what exactly it would look like would be. So it, it remains to be seen exactly how this will play out. But it almost sort of sounds like like the conventional story on how World War One happened, like uh, my ally got into war, so my, I'm going to come in. Now this ally is going to come in. We're starting to see massive reverberations, not just in Ukraine or in Eastern Europe, but throughout Europe as a whole, militarizing, getting ready for war, getting ready for potential other places where war could out- break out because of this war. There's also lots of uh, problems going on in the Balkans right now between Russia's allies and NATO. So a lot of people are wondering, the war is localized in Ukraine right now. Um, Could another war uh, happen between Russia and the West in a different part of Europe? And uh, this is the kind of thing that people in Finland and Sweden are starting to think. So talk about uh, the relationship between Russia and, and these nations historically. They, they, they've There's been a lot of uh, bad blood between them. Yeah. So if you want to go 
back, uh, way, way back, centuries ago, um, during the early modern period, Russia and Sweden actually were bitter enemies of each other, fighting for control over the Baltic Sea, over places like um, Finland, like uh, what's today the Baltic states. The days of Finland being a, uh, a world power that makes everyone's boots tremble is long gone. But it's still part of the uh, a historical trend of Russia and some Western country fighting for control over the Baltic Sea. It's a very, very strategic part for Russia. The whole re reason that um, Peter the Great built his capital, St. Petersburg, was to get access to the Baltic Sea, was to get access to those trade routes, to get closer to Europe. And one of the main aims uh, for Russia to protect its security has always been to get a warm water port. Russia lacks those, and the Baltic Sea, while part of it freezes over in the winter, the more of that Russia controls, the easier of a time it would have having a strong navy as a buffer to Europe. Now, Finland, meanwhile, uh, for a while, it was part of the Russian Empire. Um, it got independent after World War One. As I mentioned, it fought actually fought two wars, one right before World War Two, And during World War Two, Finland actually sided with the Germans, not because they were anti-Semitic or they wanted to support Hitler, but they were just so terrified of Stalin. The idea was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So while we may think of the Nordic uh, uh, world and Scandinavia today as being the last place you would expect uh, war to break out or of a warrior culture, it has been uh, a hot zone for Europe for hundreds of years, including within living memory. So ergo, people are worried that something in the future, in the near future, could break out again. Well, if you'd like more information about this uh, geopolitical situation, we have two articles that we'll link to in the show notes uh, in today's program. The Crimean crisis is reshaping Europe, and Finland and Sweden want to join NATO. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Zekic. One final story. The World Cup just finished last Sunday. The fact that it was held in Qatar, an Islamic state, brought Europeans and Middle Eastern Muslims into a lot of close contact with one another, and it brought some tensions and even some violence. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, it's been a very geopolitical World Cup. I've been surprised um, how much it's cropped up on our website, and I don't think that's just because we writers want to shoehorn in uh, ways to get the world to get the World Cup into our coverage. <laughs> uh, this particular one has come with the pretty stunning success of Morocco. Uh, I think they're one of this. I can't remember. I, 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 I'm 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 not one of those people that have all the stats at their fingertips, but I think it's one of the best an African country has ever done, and the, one of the best a majority Muslim country has ever done. And uh, People have joked that uh, Morocco at the World Cup has done more for pan-Arab nationalism than uh, NASA in, uh, ever ever did. But uh, this really came to the fore, though, when their games against Belgium and France. Not Morocco beat Belgium 2-0 on November 27th. France beat Morocco 2-0 on December 14th. But both times, win or lose, there was this outpouring of chaos from Moroccan immigrants. They set fire to bins and cars. There were assaults, fights with the police. There have been cries of things like uh, free Palestine and things that have nothing to do with football. In, uh, in Liege and in Belgium, there was a police station and, and car attacks. So uh, it is also 
not just kind of maybe rallied the Muslim world together, but uh, also showed this big divide and uh, with uh, Muslims in Europe that are quite willing to torch their neighborhoods uh, without too much excuse. I think we're likely to see more of this over the coming weeks. It's practically a New Year's tradition that uh, in some of France, migration districts that are primarily made up of North Africans, they run along the streets torching cars. Uh, so we'll see a lot of that kind of candles probably in uh, in the Saint-Denis region of Paris. Uh, and uh, you have some of these areas that are basically no-go zones. You also uh, even had a 14-year-old boy being... Uh, deliberately hit by a car as part of this violence. And uh, the Cassure magazine talked about these riots as being a real clash of civilizations. So this, uh, a change in attitude towards Europe when it comes to Islam, both in the Middle East and at home, is, is a key forecast that we've been making. Daniel 11, we come back to again and again, talks about this clash between a, a European king of the north other scriptures tell you it's going to be a very much a religious, a Christian power versus radical Islam led by Iran. And so this turnaround in or this, this kind of violence is helping to turn attitudes around in Europe. It's leading to a change in attitudes towards Muslims at home. It's leading to that clash abroad as well. And we have an article on an in-depth article on our website uh, by Daniel DeSanto called When the World Cup Becomes a Clash of Civilizations that goes through all of this. All right, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that is it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, Mihailo Zekic, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Mark Twain. Whenever you find that you are on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.